Well, today uh, we will hear the phrase, Happy Mother's Day, uh, many times and perhaps even say it to others. But this week I read an article uh, that was riveting as well as revealing. The article talked about how hard Mother's Day is for, not just for women, uh, but for, for many people in general. And the hard article uh, hit me in, in my heart and had me uh, thinking more deeply about a, a celebration that we have every year, but that how sometimes we gloss over the sorrow and the pain that's involved. And some of you are well aware of this pain. Perhaps it's because you lost your mother. And every Mother's Day, you remember the pain of grief or Maybe it's even as a result of you having tension with your own kids or a loss of a child yourself. Perhaps Mother's Day reminds you of the the brokenness that you experience regularly in your own family or the empty arms that you have as a result of infertility. The question that I want to pose to us is kind of threefold. Like, Like, what do you do with that sorrow? What do we do with sad? But perhaps more importantly, where is Jesus? What is Jesus doing in the midst of our sorrow? What is Jesus doing with our sad? And here at Sojourn, uh, we have perhaps another reason to be sorrowful, another reason to be sad this morning. Last Sunday, our founding pastor, Daniel Montgomery, offered his resignation to us as a church. Daniel is and has been not only my pastor, but is a friend. And that saddens me. That is a source of, of grief, a source of sorrow. And if I could just be transparent with you, if I can just keep it 100, as we say in the hood. Uh, This week was an incredibly difficult week. In fact, I don't know if I've had as a pastor a week more difficult, dealing with the sadness of that as well as helping other people to hold that tension and that sadness. Four out of five evenings I spent uh, late into the night meeting with community groups, meeting with individuals who are having a hard time processing uh, Daniel's leave. And so in a minute, we're going to look at a text that will help us to answer the question, what does Jesus do when we're sad? Um, But first, I just want to give us a quick pastoral word about Daniel's resignation. Um, As you all know, uh, Pastor Daniel resigned last week. And leading up to that, in December, he was placed on a nine-month leave of absence, in his own words, to deal with some leadership issues and and sinful patterns of relating that impacted the elders here as well as some staff. And one thing that was kind of clear as we spent time, as I spent time and as your pastor spent time meeting with people this week, um, is that last week we didn't communicate um, enough or give maybe more details in our members meeting. that, that some people want it. And I just want to speak to that quickly by just saying, I'm a PK. 
I grew up in a, a pastor's home. And Daniel wanted his family and his kids to be here for um, his resignation. And I and the elders did not think it was an appropriate time to go through the exact process and how things went uh, with his leave of absence. Um, we don't have anything to hide. There's, there's, there's nothing um, in, the, in the background, as, as Daniel said last week, that's, that's scandalous. We simply want to use prudence and wisdom as we share information. In fact, on May the 24th, as a family, we're going to come together as our uh, member meeting and talk about his resignation and the process that led up to it, um, hopefully in a way that will answer uh, some questions and, and ease your heart. But the fact of the matter is, is that we still have to deal with the sadness that no matter what the answer is, there's going to be grief and sorrow because um, your pastor and, and my friend pastored this church for 17 years and preached a big, great gospel of grace, and there should be sadness. So I just want to deal with Luke chapter 7, verse 11 through 17 to, to answer the question, what does Jesus do when we grieve? I want to look at this in, in the applicational way to, to both the situations for, for what we're grieving about, possibly as, as parents, as, as a mother, or as someone who um, desires to be a mother but who isn't a mother yet, as well as what do we do as a church? How do we grieve as a church? What is Jesus saying to us today as a church as we grieve the resignation of uh, Daniel? So Luke chapter 7, verse 11 through 17, if you could stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. And what we hold in our hand is not a self-help book, a book made of neat little suggestions. This is the very words of God written by a holy man under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to read it as such. Amen. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Then he went and touched the bier they, they were carrying him on, and the bearer stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. And this news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'm going to tag this text. Your Savior and your sorrow. Your Savior and your sorrow. As we answer the question, uh, what, is, what, do, what are we supposed to do with sad? And what is Jesus doing in the midst of our sadness and sorrow? There's two things we want to look at today. Number one, this text calls us to pay attention to your sorrow. We need to pay attention to our sorrow. And second, we need to pay attention to our Savior. Pay attention to your Savior. In this text, we see there are two crowds that are about to converge. Verse 11 through 13, the first crowd is a crowd that is being led by a woman. And the text tells us that this woman is dealing with great loss. And this isn't the first time that she's dealing with a great loss. 
The text calls her a widow, which means that her husband uh, once died as well. And now she is facing the death of her son. This is a big deal. This is a sad scene. In first century Judea, we would have seen that this Jewish woman would be perplexed and facing poverty as women were not uh, the breadwinners of their home. Her losing her husband as well as her only son would have most likely meant that she was in a, a place of being depleted, a place of brokenness. Can you see this woman? Earlier in the day, she probably sat on her floor grooming her dead son, fixing his hair, putting on soft cloths as she prepared his body to be carried. Then four men probably would have walked into her home, picked up this mat that her son was on and began to carry him through this little town called Nay, a town who was named after the Hebrew word, which means pleasant. This isn't a pleasant day for this woman as she is grieving, as she is in pain. And the way a processional went back then was very strategic. This woman would have probably led the procession. See, women back then in Jewish culture, they led the processional because the Jews knew that Eve sinned in the garden by biting the fruit. And they had women, women lead the procession to be a reminder that sin and death entered the world through a woman. This was almost a sort of shame. Not only is she carrying sorrow, but she's carrying shame. And behind this grieving woman would have been four people carrying her son's body. And behind them would have been professional mourners mourning and singing, lamenting the sorrow that is in her life and in her heart. And behind the professional mourners would have been family members. And behind the family members probably would have been the 500 people in that community, all singing songs of lament, all sorrowful, weeping because this woman lost not only her husband in the past, but now her only son. And then there would have been gossipers because Jews had a way of, of looking at death and, and trauma and tragedy in a way that said she probably deserved it. There's probably something that she was doing in secret behind closed doors that led her to this place. Do you feel the weight of her grief? Do you feel the weight of her sorrow? Do you see this first group walking and mourning? And then there's a second group. And the second group is led by Jesus. And the text says there's a large crowd, possibly a crowd of at least a thousand people with him. Those people are probably jockeying for his attention. After all, he's Jesus. There's been no one that they've ever seen who spoke with such authority. No one who could just speak a word to a, a young boy who is 
sick with fever and on his way to death and just say, he's healed. And the boy's healed. There's been no one like him. And they're probably talking and, and chattering and, and celebrating. And all of a sudden, these two groups converge. And rather than go around the funeral, rather than turn back, rather than just join the procession, Jesus is going to care for this woman in an amazing way. In a way that reminds us that as we suffer, as we grieve, as we go through our sorrow, that he is near. My challenge to you today, to all of us, as we all are dealing with some sort of sadness in our life, my challenge to you is to pay attention to your sorrow. Don't suppress it. Don't, don't, don't hide it. Pay attention to it. Listen to your sorrow. Why are you sorrowful today? Is it for some of the things that I mentioned earlier or is it for other reasons? Is it that you thought you were going to get that promotion and never came through? That you thought your life would look different than it does now, but it's not? What's making you sorrowful? Is it regret about a decision you made in the past? Is it a broken relationship that you've tried to work through and fix that hasn't been able to fix? Don't smother it, deal with it. My wife and I, we went to uh, Maryland a few years ago. This is when we had a, a one child and we were uh, there in Maryland on vacation. And we we're driving through a residential area. And this area had speed bumps like you would not believe. I mean, it should have been illegal to have the speed bumps that it was. It was like driving over a mountain. And I tried my hardest to drive slow over the speed bump. But I still ended up messing up underneath my car. I mean, I was pumping the brake, hitting the gas. And finally, we got over that speed bunk, and I said, I know it's some damage done. So I pulled over, got under the car. My muffler was kind of tangled and leaning to the side. And I had an important decision to make. We were due to leave town the next morning. Either I could take it to a shop and hope that they could fix it, or I can keep driving and, and act like it wasn't broke. Well, you know me being all responsible and everything. I kept driving. But I turned up the music so that I wouldn't hear the muffler scrape against the asphalt. And so everybody else, wherever we pulled up, heard this horrible screeching sound. But we were okay because the music was up. And some of us, that's how we deal with sadness and sorrow. Maybe it's the way we were raised. Maybe it's the way our parents dealt with sorrow. Uh, maybe it's because the, the, we don't know what to do with our, our emotions and they just kind of overtake us. But what we do is we turn the music up. When things start to go south, we, we run for a little southern comfort. When things don't go our way, we try to medicate ourselves with, with things that will help us in the moment forget about our pain. But here's the thing, that pain is going to come back up. Either we deal with our sorrow or our sorrow will come back to deal with us. This is my story. Went away to college. And I got a call a couple weeks into being at, at college and a friend of mine's name, Xavier, committed suicide. And it's brought back a horrible memory because I had another friend just a few years later a girl that I was friends with ever since the third grade who committed suicide. 
And I look back on that day and I just remember the pain. I was almost paralyzed. I didn't call anybody back home. I ignored some phone calls. I just didn't deal with it. I didn't want to deal with it. Then after that, another friend of mine passed. And then after that, I broke up with a girl that I had uh, been dating since high school that I thought that I was going to marry. And rather than run to the Lord because I was a Christian, uh, rather than, than seek his face, rather than fix my eyes on him, rather than deal with the sorrow and the brokenness that I was experiencing, I ran to other things. Started drinking more to the point that it was controlling me more than I was controlling it. Went to drugs, went to women trying to cover up, to snuff out this pain that I was experiencing. But in this text, we see that this woman, in all of her grief and all of her pain, she couldn't just cover it up. It was a public matter. She had to deal with it. But I want to let you know, dealing with your sorrow and your pain is the right thing to do. And that's one thing I appreciate about Jewish culture, first, especially first century, as they knew how to lament, they knew how to mourn. Even as we look at the Old Testament, the Psalter, the the psalmist often dealt with their pain. They were real and they were raw. Psalm 13, how long, oh Lord, how long? Book of Lamentations, a whole book in the Bible is devoted to lamenting, is devoted to, to expressing one's pain and the horror in which one feels internally. Reminded by David's words as he lost Jonathan and Saul, he took time to write himself clear and to write a song. Second Samuel chapter one, verse 23, he says, Saul and Jonathan in life, they were loved and admired and in death, they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel weep for Saul who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lay slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war has, has perished. I think the Lord has given us all an invitation to weep to weep well, to process our loss by, journey, by journaling, by writing, by talking to someone about how we feel and how we experience this loss, but also by embracing the confusion of loss. What's interesting about this text is that the text says that Jesus sees this woman in her pain. Jesus sees her in the midst of the mourners, in the midst of family members, in the midst of the gossipers, in the midst of the brokenness, Jesus' eyes is on her. In the midst of the commotion of the crowd thronged against him, celebrating him, walking with him, Jesus sees her. His eyes is fixed on her and her grief and her reality and her poverty and her brokenness. But she doesn't know that. All she knows is the pain that she feels. All she hears is the songs that's being sung. She was living in what we call the in-between. Christian life, 
It's a constant rhythm of death, burial, and resurrection. On Friday, Jesus died. On Saturday, there was confusion. There was a waiting. There was questions by the disciples, questions like, what's next? But on Sunday, there was a resurrection. And some of you right now, you're in a season of, of death. As, as perhaps the, the things in your life that you once enjoyed are, are no longer the same. And some of you, you're in a, a season of, of burial while you are just waiting to see what's next for you. And the thing I want to invite you into as we look at this text is to embrace the waiting. To embrace the confusion, to embrace your humanness, to embrace it is just to say, you know what? I don't know. But we don't want to stay there. As we embrace where we are, we want to fix our eyes on Jesus. On a Jesus who cares for us. On a Jesus who sympathizes with us. Some people look at this text, you say, well, we'll fix our eyes on Jesus. We can't ignore the fact that in verse 13, Jesus says, don't cry. Is Jesus telling us to suppress our emotions, our sadness? Is Jesus telling us to just kind of have this, this yitty hope because we're in him? That's not what Jesus is doing at all. Jesus' life invites us to weep. Psalm 53 tells us that Jesus was a man of sorrow acquainted with grief. Jesus himself knows sorrow. He knows grief. He knows the in-between. Matthew 26, Jesus is on his way to the cross and he tells his disciples that his soul is overwhelmed and grieving. Jesus is not telling his woman not to cry because he thinks emotions aren't helpful. Jesus is telling his woman not to cry because he knows what's about to happen. He knows that God has a plan for her brokenness. He knows that God even ordains these brokenness for they are good in his glory. That's what I want to come to encourage you is to fix your eyes on Jesus. Hebrews 12 tells us, lay aside every weight and every sin that so easily gets us off course and fix our eyes on Jesus. Don't fix your eyes on me. Don't, don't, don't fix your eyes on, on me to the point that you want to, to build something around me or every word I say. Don't, don't fix your eyes on our beloved Pastor Daniel. Don't fix your eyes on an on a elder, on, on a leader as, your, as a supreme person that you're looking to. No, fix your eyes on the God-man who came and lived a perfect life and who died the death that you deserve. Fix your eyes on the one who created you and who knows the number of hairs on your head. Fix your eyes on the one in whom the church is built on, the one who is eternal. Fix your eyes on the author and the finisher of your faith. Fix it on him. And when we fix our eyes on him, we will see a person who is incredibly unbelievably compassionate, who has a compassion like no other. Look at the text. 
Verse 13, when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and he said, don't cry. He is compassionate. He saw her. Years ago, I was reading this devotionally and that jumped off on the page one morning as I was going through a dark time that Jesus saw her. And I felt the Lord telling me, I see you. The Lord sees you. Whatever the problem is, he sees you. His eye is fixed on you as his beloved child. He sees soldier. He sees the in-between. He sees and hears our questions of what's next. He's there. A pastor may not have visited your community group, but God is there. And he hears your questions. And he's not confused, though some of us are. But not only does he compassionately view us, but he graciously moves towards us. This was grace in motion. This was God ordaining a divine intersection between two, these two groups. This was Emmanuel being with this woman. And the reason is grace is because grace is unmerited and undeserved. This woman did nothing in her own power to solicit or bring Jesus into her presence. This dead man didn't do anything to impress Jesus, to come up to name and to, to, to raise him. And just as we contribute no good work to our faith because our faith is based on grace. This is God's unmerited kindness. This is his undeserved goodness. Jesus is grace and he graciously moves towards you in your confusion. He graciously moves towards us when we are confused and do stupid stuff. Let's be honest. We don't go through our times of sorrow all the time in the spirit. Some of us in here, we went through our times of, uh, of sorrow this week in the flesh. We don't always run to Jesus when we're sad. No, I run a Chick-fil-A a little more than I should. Amen. <laughs> but he's gracious, merciful. He's moved in his gut. That's what the text says. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and he said, don't cry. Jesus now is on the right hand side of the father and he is sympathetic towards his children. His blood is pleading for us, justifying us. Not only do we want to see Jesus' compassion and grace, but finally we want to see his power. The text says, and when he went up to the bear, they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk. And Jesus, look at Jesus gave him back to his mother. What a beautiful picture. 
You see his power? While we are confused and living in the in-between, may we remember that God is all-powerful. That where we like to put commas and periods, God likes to continue that sentence. And even in our time of waiting, God is at work and he is able. God is able to save a sin-sick soul. God is able to comfort one who may have empty arms. God is able to satisfy us more than any earthly pleasure. God is powerful enough to change our circumstance and our situation. But here's what we have to believe. We have to believe that God is at work in a way in which is more powerful than if he was to give us the very thing we want in our circumstance. See, this man, though he is raised from the dead, one day he is going to die again. And this man, though he is raised from the dead, is going to experience the death of others again. See, we live in a fallen and broken world and we, though we are loved in Christ, we are fallen and broken and we are going to break others. And even if God was to give you the very thing you think you need to have joy and to be happy, it wouldn't last long because something else would break down. Somebody else will disappoint. Someone else would leave. So what we need is not the thing on this earth that we think we need. What we need is a bigger vision of Jesus. A vision that says, I am the resurrection and the life. A vision that says, I am living water. A vision that says, I am the bread of life. A vision that says the church is built on me, the God man. And the gates of hell will not prevail against her. What we need is to remember that one day there will be a resurrection and we will be raised together in Christ in such a way that we will be free from mourning. We will be free from arthritis. We'll be free from sickle cell. We'll be free from cancer. We'll be free from pain. And we will be in the glory of Jesus Christ, a glory that is so beautiful and that shines so bright that the S-U-N has no need to shine because the S-O-N is shining. What we need, Sojourn Community Church, is in the in-between is to trust Jesus and to know that everything will be all right. What happens when a church does that? What happens when a, a woman does that? What happens when a, a man does that? When we, when we embrace and pay attention to our sorrow as we embrace our Savior? What, what happens is that God begins to work in our story that we begin to see God's hand in the death, the burial, and the resurrection seasons of our life. And not only do we begin to see that, but people begin to see that. And this God who drew us and who wooed us in love is now being exalted and glorified. And that's what happens in this text. 
God used her pain to glorify his son. And the question is, is will you allow God to use your pain to glorify Jesus? Will you hold on to your steadfast anchor in the midst of the storm so that he will be glorified? Or will we run and gossip and accuse be cynical, give up, or will we bow down on our face and on our knees and admit our humanness? Will we come to him as little children saying, Lord, I'm tired. I don't know. This is something, going through something that I went through before that hurt And will we cast our cares on him, trusting that he will bring clarity and he will bring comfort because he cares for us. And every Sunday when we gather together, we gather and we have a meal towards the end of our service to remember Christ's faithfulness. A meal that should remind us that Jesus was a man of sorrow, but a meal that should also remind us that one day we will eat with him again in the kingdom of God without sorrow. And that meal is what we call communion. The night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. He says, this is my body broken for you. In the same way, he took a cup. He says, this cup is a new covenant in my blood shed for you. As often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, Christian, we preach the Lord's death until he returns. Here at Sojourn, we take a piece of bread, we dip it in wine or juice. The wine is marked by twine, whatever your conscience permits. And we touch this bread and we taste this juice. We we eat it to remind us that even in the midst of our sorrow, God is good and God is real. If you're not a Christian here, we're going to ask you not to partake of this meal. But what we want you to do is to to take Christ. This is a family meal. It's a meal that we take to remind ourselves of Christ to reflect on whether or not we're believing this good news of Jesus Christ, that Christ came to save sinners, and that we're saved not by our works, but by his grace. My prayer for you, if you don't know Jesus, is for you to know him. And knowing Jesus doesn't mean that all your problems are going to go away or that all of a sudden you will practically just be a saint and do no wrong. That's not the case. All of us are sinners. And still sin. Knowing Jesus means that you believe that Jesus paid for your sin and that the God who created the universe and who is holding it all together loves you in spite of your sin. And he came and allowed his son to come to take your sin and to give you his righteousness. This is grace. God loves you. Run to him and trust him. Be baptized. Declare to people.
what God is doing in your heart. Just a second, we're going to have our servant leaders come to the front. If you're in the front half of the room, you can come and take communion in the front. Back half of the room, take it in the back. Gluten-free communion is over to my left. Let's pray.